On July 24, 1999, Wyclef Jean played this version of the Star Spangled Banner in front of a couple hundred thousand people in Rome, New York, from the east stage of Woodstock 99. No one predicted, but maybe they should have, that the festival would later end up looking a lot like this rendition. Sad, violent, completely fucked up. A poor tribute to a memory that no one asked for. A burning mess that ended the 90s. Today we're talking Woodstock 99 on this special episode of Days of the New. It's Thursday, and welcome to a special summer vacation edition of Days of the New. I'm Kevin here with my co-host Nick. Nick, how the hell are you? I'm uh, I'm good. Coming at you live from uh, balmy Las Vegas. It's hot out. So the reason we're breaking radio silence as we work on season three is because yesterday, which for our listeners in the future was July 24th in the year of our Lord 2021. HBO Max premiered the documentary Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. And as many, if not all, of our listeners know, Woodstock 99 plays a central role in the story of new metal. We could do a whole podcast series about Woodstock 99 itself, but somebody already has. So if you want a highly entertaining and well-researched play-by-play of the festival itself, go ahead and listen to the series Podcast 99. Uh, These guys put a lot of research and a lot of work into it, and I cannot recommend it enough. But today, we're going to look at the documentary and give you the hottest takes on a festival that happened 22 years ago. And to do that, we're joined yet again by friend of the show, Mogan Brown. Mogan, how are you? I am. I'm fantastic. I mean, outside of watching this documentary, which uh, wasn't very fun. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm doing great. Yeah, uh, as our resident Ramstein expert, uh, we would be remiss not to have you here for what is arguably the finest piece of arson in new metal history. Yeah, it was a literal shit show. And, you know, for all things Air Force Base related, you have to be on the show. (laughs) (laughs) You can't have an Air Force Base without fire. Since we've well passed the 20-year mark for Woodstock 99... And it's largely kind of been a footnote, but as that anniversary came up, there were like two different podcast series. There's been a lot of kind of think pieces on it. Give me the hot takes. Well, first off, I thought it was really well done. I I guess it's episode one in a series that's going to be about other music related things. So like, I will look forward to watching it. Yeah, I I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I didn't enjoy a lot of the stuff that happened. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it really, like the intro really paints this portrait of the halcyon days of 1999. Now, by the intro, do you mean where the director comes on the screen to explain what you're about to watch you might think is funny? It's not. (laughs) In telling the story of Woodstock 99, it would have been really easy to structure this as a comedy, poking fun of all things late 1990s, the way people dress, the music they listened to. But in reality, as that weekend unfolded, it played out much more like a horror film. So that's not Brett Ratner, correct? <laughs> no, no, it is not. Okay, just making sure. 
you know, but even this, like, it's shocking how innocent it all seemed. Like, the World Trade Center was a thing that still existed, and, like, a sitting president lying about using his power to get a blowjob from an intern was, like, the height of moral outrage. But this was also three months after coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, with, like, the four different Britney Spears documentaries that have come out, and then this, it's really shows you just how warped our sense of right and wrong and what was appropriate at the time is or was. Mm-hmm. Before we get into this, what is your guys' recollection of the Woodstock 94s and 99s? Just kind of get a sense where you were at. So 94, I was just a little kid. Um, I was, you know, like junior high or something. And I, I remember that was right about the time that I discovered mm-hmm. MTV. I was watching a lot of beach MTV with Daisy Fuentes. <laughs> and, you know, that woman made me a man. <laughs> um, I just remember the Green Day and Nine Inch Nails sets, to be perfectly honest. Like, I think those oh. are like the culturally important moments. Yeah. yeah. Both those are like, um, like literally the apex of both those bands' careers are those sets. Yeah. Right. But you could say that about Woodstock 99 and Korn, too. Like, I think they had <laughs> the most important moment of their career. Um, 99, I wanted to go. Uh, I, naturally, I didn't because, you know, I was broke. And- like, it was like legit on your radar. Like, yeah, I mean, I was I, I had just graduated from high school. So I nice. was like of the, of the target age. Um, but like the idea of like road tripping to New York is impossible. I mean, like my, my parents live like. 15 miles from where they were born. Like we just didn't do big trips yeah. like that. And you know, it was nothing I did until later in life, but I did buy the CD. Mm. It has a truly horrendous cover of roadhouse blues by the doors as performed by. Oh Creed. my God. <laughs> that I, yeah, what was great about this is that they actually took about five minutes of this hour and 50 minute documentary to talk about how nobody gives a shit about the doors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, who is it? I mean, we'll maybe get to it, but somebody even pointed out, no, like people barely even gave a shit about Creed, much less the Doors. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that. Well, we'll we'll get. What about you guys? I remember '94. Uh, my parents had a uh, block on MTV, but this was you could still flip past the like uh, Playboy channel, and you could kind of see things and so i remember flipping through the pay-per-view and watching some of like a scrambled aerosmith but the audio still came through and then um 99 um i was actually (laughs) at a large christian music festival uh working for the band five iron frenzy and i remember (laughs) us watching primus in the backstage lounge on the friday wow so yeah wow Yeah, for me, 94, I clearly remember I was at my grandparents' house in New Jersey uh, spending the summer there. And my grandpa had like one of those black box cable things where you got like 400 channels. And one of them was the live feed of Woodstock and uh, 94. And I spent my entire summer like in a basement just watching all these repeat performances. And the ones that really stuck out to me, obviously Nine Inch Nails, but the one I really loved was Rollins band. It was just fucking fascinating to watch this guy command a crowd like that uh, in nothing but gym shorts. Yeah, and, and when I think of peace, love, and music, I definitely think of Henry Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I was engrossed by it. It was like one of the most exhilarating things. I wanted to be there so bad. By 99, it was just kind of like I looked at it with a passing fascination. Like, because Nick, a lot like you, 
the idea of I'm 19 years old and having 50 bucks in my pocket is a big deal. How the fuck am I going to get to this place? Who's going to go with me? Yeah, well, you're stupid, though, because back then gas was like a dollar five. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah like, it was. Two, two, two tanks and you're there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the price of admission, they showed uh, one of the uh, a ticket. I adjusted it for inflation. For a three-day pass to Woodstock 99, it was 180 bucks back then. Present day, that's $293.55 or one day at Lollapalooza. Uh, I know we'll talk about water a lot, but just for a sense of perspective here, the $4 bottle of water would have been six fifty present day for like a little 12-ounce bottle of Deer Park. Hey, it was, it was Evian, to be fair. It was Evian. <laughs> <laughs> but but if, if that $4 was also the price of a Heineken, that means beers were only six fifty. So, I mean, it's kind of... Yeah, it evens out. Give right. and take. Yeah. All right. So, let's get into it. We've just watched this. We're coming off kind of fresh. Uh, it's fresh in our minds. Uh, how do you guys want to go about this? So I think that I, one way I kind of wanted to approach it is normally on the show, we'll break down an album by different song titles. Mm -hmm. I think that there are different segments. Mm. Uh, and some of those segments are just the intro of Describe the Festival. Talk about the people find section. Corn. Heat. Water. <laughs> mud. Titties. <laughs> Limp Bizkit. Generational Divide. The Rave Room, and uh, overall destruction and sexual assault. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ending with Coachella. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so for those that don't know what Woodstock 99 was, right, it was obviously the celebration of Woodstock because boomers think that every generation needs to experience things exactly how they did. So here you go. Here's, here's something you didn't ask for. It took place inside of Griffith's Air Force Base because both previous Woodstocks had massive problems with gate crashers. They literally picked a place that was fortified yeah. so that gate crashers couldn't get in. Spoiler, they did. <laughs> there were only, well, I mean, obviously, for if you haven't watched a documentary, you don't know what this is. It was a, one of the biggest disasters in, uh, in concert history. Uh, there were 350 to 400,000 attendees, and they supposedly had 10,000 staff members. Now, a large majority of those staff members were the Peace Patrol, <laughs> which were security guards that were untrained. And about half of those guys just like took their Peace Patrol shirts off as soon as they got inside and uh, joined the party. Yeah, fuck that. I want to go see corn. Well, I kind of want to possibly go back to my first note, which is uh, Michael Lang sucks. And uh, Michael Lang was one of the main uh, promoters of Woodstock 99. He was also the main promoter of Woodstock's... Yeah, and the original founder of Woodstock. Yeah, and over the years, I've seen a lot of documentaries on Woodstock. And even as a young man, I've just been like, yeah, I don't like that guy. That guy sucks. My opinion, my hot take on him is, you know, he's an entrepreneurial boomer who's just like, hey, guys, I know what's cool. And to not get too far ahead of ourselves, the uh, prophet Dave Mustaine at the end who says, peace sells, but who's buying? <laughs> Michael Lang is selling. You know, so all this shit like, oh, we're the peace patrol, we're the peace wall, we're this, we're that, you know. He's literally just out there selling culture to other affluent middle class white people. What even was the purpose of the first Woodstock? You know, they said it was a celebration of peace and love, but it was at a ticketed event so you could see Bob Dylan and the Who play, which is awesome, but they act like it's protest march or something when really it was just a bunch of white college kids watching band. And then here we are 25 years later carrying it over and now it's 
got Aerosmith, and then here we are in 99, and it's corn and the biscuit. <laughs> and I think that, that it talks a little bit about the, the generational divide and how like they wanted to bring this back. And even throughout, as everything's burning and falling apart, their spin is still, hey, it's going great. And it's always been that about 69, but in reality, the original Woodstock was a disaster too. Absolutely, so yeah. Fucking awful, yeah. So this is uh, Maureen Callahan from Spin and Wesley Morris from the New York Times. The thing about the Woodstock mythology is I feel like people are being selective about how they're choosing to remember what happened to suit their own ends. And the way in which we choose to romanticize it has everything to do with who's telling stories. Unlike the prevailing lore would have it, Woodstock 69 was anything but peace, love, and you know, three days of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was a mess. There were riots. The U.S. Army had to airlift supplies in. People died. So there you go. I mean, I think she breaks it down better than, or they, those people broke down exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, this guy is obviously kind of got this Peter Pan, oh, we'll make it work kind of thing going on, which has carried him through life. But the real villain of this film is John Shear. He is the fucking Antichrist. Every time this man opens his mouth on camera, he just says the absolute worst thing you could possibly say in that situation. I have a bullet that says John Shear sucks ass. <laughs> I have a list that we'll get to at the end of uh, people John Shear blames that aren't himself. <laughs> I love it. I, my, my favorite moment with John Shear, John Shear was the other organizer right so my favorite is when it's after day one and they're in the scrum with all the journalists and some music journalist is like dude it is trashed out there and Cher just freaks out on him and says I'll pay you to clean it up help don't criticize help don't criticize and I'm like they're the media you yeah. son of a bitch why yeah. do they have to help, help you? also you're doing this for profit fuckface. like well don't they also <laughs> right. doesn't he send someone over to take the microphone away from the guy first just yeah like before yeah. the guy's even done talking just literally just shutting down criticism you know like Trump so for those of you wondering why we are do doing this episode is because this festival featured a shitload of new metal and all of the toxic elements that led to new metal that we talked about all the you know the traditional tropes of homophobia and misogyny and everything really came to a head moby has a really great quote about that i remember i looked at the lineup and i was like what is this like how did this happen how is this called woodstock it would have made so much more sense if it had been called like Army Base Rock 99 featuring Limp Biscuit. I think this is uh, Moby's first appearance since he got canceled for uh, admitting that he slept with Natalie Portman when she was 18. I don't I don't think he slept with Natalie Portman. I think he said he dated her and she was like, uh, I told you to leave me alone then. <laughs> and he was like 23 years yeah, older than her. Well, you know, he's currently uh, gotten a bunch of uh, tattoos tattoos yeah he's like billboard man like his tattoos are oh uh, yeah they serve oh yeah purpose. toby from h2o is uh big on posting those photos yeah no he just looks like uh you remember mr cool ice yeah but he's <laughs> he's the animal rights version of mr, mr. cool ice yeah. mr mr cool rights <laughs> the thing here is that they don't focus on new metal too much as the cause because that narrative has largely been dispelled Corn is not responsible for the riots. No, not at all. And neither is Limp Biscuit. None of the bands are responsible. At the time, Limp Biscuit, their video immediately after this for uh, Rearranged, it was them on trial in a courtroom 
for the riots at Woodstock. Yeah, I mean, they had Fred Durst during the festival on MTV News be like, it's not my fault. <laughs> no, he literally walks off stage and they ask, what do you think of this? And he just, the, the first thing out of his mouth is it's not our fault. I mean, I do I, do I think they tried to incite the crowd? Yes, but I don't think they tried to... They didn't tell anybody to light anything on fire. They didn't tell anybody to tear down, you know, the tower. No, and I mean, are, are we talking, are we, we're basically to the new metal? Because there's that whole section of Dave Holmes goes on the whole thing about like, why are there DJs? Like That felt like an unnecessary dig. Yeah, that's during, that's yeah. during Kid Rock's set. Well, I have at 4710, I have Fuck Kid Rock, but that I think was for the Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. But he says, Monica Lewinsky is a whore, like full on, like not ho, whore. And Bill Clinton is a pimp. What did he say to start that off? This is about how deep Kid Rock thinks. Which is to say, not at all. Right, but that's grift number oh, yeah. one for Kid Rock. Absolutely. Before he turned into a right-wing political country singer. So I think, you know, the, the it wasn't the fault of, of, of Fred Durst or Kid Rock or whatever. I think this was, I mean, looking back, of course, I was a 19-year-old white guy that listened to new metal at this time. So if I was at that festival and I looked around, I wouldn't have thought anything. Looking back 20 years later, I'm like, wow, there is just a lot of angry white mm -hmm. men there. Mm -hmm. And I think the most uncomfortable moment in the documentary for me was uh, DMX's oh, performance. Oh, boy. I, I think we should not play the clip. Let's not. Okay, so DMX at the absolute height of his career, arguably one of the best performances of Woodstock 99, for sure. is doing the call and response. The response uh, has the N-word in it. And there's about, what, 500,000 white people there <laughs> yeah. all uh -huh. screaming it back in unison. I have 2445, audience clearly responding with the hard R. Yeah. So here we touched on just complete ignorance. And then shortly thereafter, they would have celebrities introduce the band. Rosie Perez, who's super popular at the time, goes up to introduce somebody. And the entire crowd starts chanting, show your tits. And like, oh my God, yeah. that just showed like shit is already toxic. People came into this thing with a toxic mindset and it's only gonna get worse. Can we play the Dave Matthews line at 2643? <laughs> sometimes there's an abundance of things and sometimes there's a lack. Today there's an abundance of titties. It's like he took his tour bus and parked it on a bridge over my brain and just <laughs> emptied the septic tank right onto my fucking brain. Into your mind's Chicago River. <laughs> He's wearing a lav mic. Why is he also on a talk show at the same time? That's weird. Anyways, there's a little inside baseball for you. <laughs> so Dave's not wrong. There are just dozens of women walking around topless at this point. There are people that are completely naked walking around at this point, including some dudes. There's nothing attractive about it. This is like dehydrated, malnourished people howling, what's that daddy night? Woo! Like, like they're at a tent revival and got caught up in the Holy Ghost. And then there's this drum circle that looks like a St. Vitus dance where people are just fucking convulsing. It's it's apocalyptic and nightmarish. Right, and, and so it, then it starts with these women, you know, sitting on their boyfriend's shoulders with their tops off. And then it quickly changes to women crowd serving topless. And every guy around them seems to think it's an open license to grope them before that advances to women crowd serving and men 
are just ripping their tops off. I mean, how many shots of there were were there of just like you know a topless woman and then some strange dude just walks up and grabs their boobs from behind like oh that's what you're supposed to do here right and yeah. big props to dexter howland from the offspring for calling the crowd out in his set his it was pretty funny he handled it well but oh my god offspring looks fucking terrifying now holy shit okay so i have a few notes on the offspring <laughs> My first one is, oh my God, fuck the offspring. Because, like, the offspring, all right, they had two bangers of, uh, they had their first one on Nitro, and then they had Smash. And then, like, from there, their entire sound, it's like if Weird Al dabbled in respectability <laughs> politics. And, like, in all fairness to the offspring, Ixnay on the Ombre was awesome. Yeah. It was when Americana came out that had Pretty Fly for a White Guy, followed by, I think it was Conspiracy of One, when they also re-recorded the song but called it Original Prankster. But that was in, like, 2000, so... But anyways. Okay, Dexter Holland is a human t-shirt cannon. He looks on this documentary like he's consumed nothing but flapjacks covered in the offspring's signature gringo bandito hot sauce. <laughs> hey, they take the dickies on tour, all right? You leave them alone. And uh, we did see uh, did see the offspring play at Riot Fest a few years ago, and they had a great set. I, had, I actually had a really good time. Yeah, Noodles is wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. He's on the right side of things. Yeah, I'm generally favorable. Scott Stapp, however. Oh, boy. Scott Stapp, I have uh, written uh, big megachurch pastor energy, and then also big, uh, I think you should leave hot dog energy of like, he wasn't like, oh yeah, those people. No, you motherfucker, you are what, like, you're like the leader of this dude. I'm just so glad he got help, man. Like, I'm so glad he got out of that hotel room in Florida when he was convinced that ISIS was going to come kidnap his family. Oh. Do you remember the time that he fought 311? No. <laughs> he went up to S, what's his name, S.A. Martinez? Yeah. Yeah, the rapper, the guy that's not Nick Hexum. Yeah. And he goes, hey, shouldn't you be selling oranges by the highway? And then they got in a fist fight, like the lobby of a Hyatt. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, dude, Scott Stepp was real fucked up for a while. Yeah. And I, I, I hate that this documentary didn't touch on the famous Scott Stepp Kid Rock porno tape. Oh, the sex tape? Isn't there like a image of it that there's like some photo of the two of them like exchanging flip phone numbers? <laughs> it looks like he's uh, he's got his uh, third act at this point and uh, God bless him. I hope he stays sober. I hope he just stays gone. <laughs> No, I hope he gets audited and uh, is indicted for January 6th for some reason. Actually, Speaking of I like have... multiple times, I have big January 6th energy written down for multiple timestamps here. I, 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 have a, I have a note that says, how many people, like how many angry white Woodstock 99 rioter dudes do you think also stormed the Capitol? Like there's got to be at least one person that was at both. Oh, you mean 1,000 people who are at both? <laughs> There's one guy here that really bothered me, and this stuck out to me the most. Um, I'm just destroying the wall for fun, just because I'm at Woodstock. That guy is probably writing legislation in Washington right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That quote is literally like everyone at January 6th of just like, well, why not? It's fun. They yeah. told us to, you know. You know, we, we said, you know, Fred Durst not at fault for the riots that happened. Ultimately, in the middle of day two, the wall started to get ripped down. People are now crying crowd surfing on it. The real carnage happened on day three after a uh, charity group called PAX 
uh, distributed oh. candles so they could do a candlelight vigil to commemorate the victims of Columbine and to prevent gun violence. And uh, then everybody would use those candles to light the whole place on fire. <laughs> Can I comment on that real quick? I mean, this whole guise of Woodstock is this whole like peace, love, and music. Let's all come together and do good things for the world. But then this fucking shitty music festival of just hoarding people into a giant concrete slab they call the security the peace patrol but they have like literally no social obligations whatsoever involved and then here's this outside group who is trying to organize a thing about fucking columbine which just happened and it seems like it's just some completely fringe aspect of the festival you know it might as well be you know the the tiba store or whatever you know and then here they are actually trying to like do some sort of social thing there and people are just like why are there candles uh, i don't know let's shut shit on fire if you give three hundred thousand people candles no matter what the scenario several dozen people are going to light something on fire i saw yoko ono at pitchfork fest one year and they handed out all these little miniature click flashlights earlier in the day with the idea that when she came on uh, as Nightfell, that everybody would like do Morse code for I love you. You can probably guess what happened when Yoko Ono came out on stage. They just chucked all the flashlights at her, right? They, ju they just whipped <laughs> flashlights at her. Because <laughs> she broke up the yeah. Beatles. <laughs> Yeah, so we have, you know, summer heat. People are dropping from heat. There's over a thousand EMT transports per day. There is an EMT in the show that was there, and he said that he was at like several hurricane zones, and Woodstock 99 was the greatest disaster he ever went to. We talked about how like bottles of water were four bucks. They also built out a water station so people could go get water, but also people were camping there. Like, so everybody was bathing in the drinking water and then eventually somebody busted a pipe open, which led to flooding all around the camp zone. And then all the porta potties overflowed. And now there's just shit and mud all over the place. John Shear orchestrated just a Dante's inferno of human suffering. Yeah. Like every single level of it is just a fucking pit of misery. Yeah, and I mean, I, it was my thought too, where I was like, why Why are these so many people still there by day three? I'm fucking gone on day two. Like this is the worst thing I've ever gone through. Cause they bought the ticket, man. The Chili Peppers are playing. <laughs> That's, okay, can we speak, uh, the Chili Peppers. Um, so Flea played that set completely naked. A solid dick on that guy. I have a very specific note about uh, the Chili Peppers. I have written down: man with exposed penis suggests throwing guns in garbage. Don't don't throw your guns in the garbage, kids. Don't throw your guns in the garbage. That's the yeah. last thing you want. To he literally guy with his dick out in front of four hundred thousand people says, "If you have a gun, man, just throw it in the trash." Be sure to throw it away, throw it in the garbage. Just get the fuck rid of it. Leave it in your front lawn. <laughs> throw it in the throw it in your neighbor's yard. Just throw it out the car window. Yeah, put it in the recycling. It's all metal. <laughs> Anyways, here's party on your pussy. <laughs> I mean, and not, I mean, and also, you know, the uh, heat and humidity was in Flea's favor <laughs> at that uh, hang time. Uh, you know, it's not like he's coming out of the Chesapeake Bay, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's uh... No, Flea, Flea's packing. Throw that thing in the garbage. <laughs> 
the Red Hot Chili Peppers are faced with a very pivotal moment where are they going to play Jimi Hendrix's Fire or are they going to just, I, I don't know, play Sir Psycho Sexy or whatever the fuck. You can see there's this moment where the promoter comes out, John Shear, who, again, is a fucking monster. And he's like, hey, can you like calm these people down? Because I like having money. Right there. Do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? And then Anthony Kiedis screams, fuck you. So, ha ha, na 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 na, we're going to play the song. This is all I want to say about that. Famous people don't give a fuck about you. You don't exist to them. Like, I don't give a shit if you're a hometown boy made good. If you spend a decade driving European sports cars and fucking supermodels and your job is to walk on stage and be adored by huddled masses, like that will change who you are on every level. Like listen to Jonathan Davis casually remark how he can issue death warrants. And then that's when you get pissed that you'll call out a fan that can beat that guy's ass. I'll go to, I'll get in trouble and sued for it. Beat that motherfucker's ass right there. You, you just did that. Donald Trump said the same thing at his rallies. <laughs> yeah, but but jo I'm on board with what Jonathan Davis said. This is for he's for social justice there. I'm on board with it, but he is like so above everybody that I can just command people to met out my justice. But he's right. He's right this time. He's the guy with the microphone. In the Chili Peppers defense, it's not in the documentary. I remember Kiedis giving an interview on MTV and said, before they went on stage, two things happened. Flea informed him he would be playing naked, and Jimi Hendrix's sister came up to him and said, will you guys play Fire as a tribute to my brother? And that's why they're saying, are we going to play it? I think that's a fucking cop-out. I mean, they could have chosen to not play it. My, my funny thing, though, is this goes back to everybody still trying to, like, attach moments from 1969 into 1999 when none of the kids that were there were alive or give a shit. There's that one clip where it, on MTV, they're like, who played the national anthem at Woodstock 69? And the guy's like, was his name Jerry? And the guy's like, come on, man. He, he goes, yeah. come on, man, please, please don't was do this it, was to Was his me. name Jerry? <laughs> Wyclef Jean playing the worst oh. national anthem. They cleaned that up for this. Oh, oh they did. They cut out. They cut out the worst moments. Yeah. Wyclef Jean did not get his Boy Scout badge for fire starting. Oh my no, god! He had a fire tech come out, like spraying lighter fluid all over oh, his hands. WD forty. Yeah. Oh, it's is real bad. But Wyclef Jean is also oh. a shitty grifter. So fuck him. Oh, absolutely. I also have a note. He's wearing the biggest pair of cargo pants I've ever seen. It's like each leg has its own backpack. Like. <laughs> Do we want to get into the people? Sure. Well, who are these people coming to this? Everyone's attitude is literally just like, you know, in that in that clip we were showing with Jonathan Davis saying like, you know, Girls Gone Wild is in the mainstream. Porno is in the mainstream. Here's something of note. Uh, the Man Show premiered 6-15-99, the movie American Pie, a film that centers around 
the entire male population of a city watching a woman undress on a computer. Uh, that came out seven nine ninety nine. Woodstock came was seven twenty two to seven twenty five ninety nine. I mean, it's literally like the cultural zeitgeist at this moment was just like tits are for everyone, get them out, you know. And so like. I don't know. The attitude that women are having, it's like, well, if you want to be people to like you, get naked. I think Jewel nailed it. She has a she has a moment where like I think she just absolutely nailed like who is coming to this thing. Woodstock 99 definitely felt like it lacked a cohesive feeling. Was it because in all honesty, the Gen Xers and the next generation really weren't fighting anything. But we wanted to be angsty and we wanted to be deep. I think the only thing we were really fighting is we didn't feel like we had a purpose. You know, difficult times galvanize you. It galvanizes you around a cause. But the 99 Woodstock just seemed like it was trying to relive a nostalgic moment along with commercialism and kind of capitalizing and trying to maximize profits, but not having a real soulful purpose for the show. And I think that's really the thing. There is no point. There is no purpose. I'm just angry and I don't know what to do about it and I'm bored. I mean, that's definitely part of it. I mean, you look at, is the greatest generation technically the parents of the boomers? They literally fought the Nazis <laughs> and won yeah. World War II. And then you have the boomers who are like, protested the Vietnam War. Now here's Gen X, you're our kids. Why aren't you happy? You need to be happy. You don't have anything to not be happy about. There's kind of that whole vibe to it. But then also at the same time, you have these boomers selling to Gen Xers. Here's your version of Woodstock. Break some fucking face tonight, you know? Yeah. And it's just this dystopian hellhole of people trapped like human cattle and saying, this is the best weekend of your life. <laughs> it blew my mind how many people were wearing flip-flops and sandals to a music festival. Oh my oh, God! Jesus shit feet on concrete. Yeah, on black tarmac. Shit feet, just trench foot. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, especially when you're walking through shit. That brings a good point. I want to know uh, what the long-term effects to people's health were. Right. So we had people died, people were raped and sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. people were dropping yeah. with hypothermia. Was it hyperthermia? It was hyperthermia. They were cooking from the inside, and it fried their fucking brain pan. <laughs> like. That's how bad it was. I want to know how many people like, yeah, like how many people like had to get a foot amputated from getting trench foot. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. How, how many, how many fucking trout babies were born because of uh, eating the fucking mud at Woodstock? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were people eating it. The mud was in their mouths and we know that it was human shit, shit now. Human shit. I've never gone to a festival where I had to camp. I just can't imagine like the, the shower facilities straight up looked like out of like a hurricane refugee zone. But doctors without borders. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. literally. <laughs> literally. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. like, I just can't imagine like, and then you, you have the rave tent where it's documented that mm. people were publicly having sex in the rave tent overnight while on like club drugs. That is some like three days unshowered and 105 degrees while walking through human shit fucking like that is i'm not here for it like moby was saying like they have like the club drug tent but none of these people these are all fucking tourists in that right. world it's like be outside all day drink no water and then go party all night on drugs you don't know how to do you know and that's why he's like out of here get, get on the bus go go now now we gotta get the fuck out of here <laughs> Leave your gear. Leave the gear. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, we, we, let's touch on uh, the new metal 
to, to close this out, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I no joke. Um, so at this point in time, this is when I started to pivot away from new metal. Same. Because when when Fred Durst is all over TRL and I'm watching like little kids are in Olympus, and I'm like, oh, this band is not for me anymore. But it is hard to watch Korn play blind at Woodstock 99 and not be like, fuck yes. Like, fuck, dude. Prime Corn so is fucking hard, man. What? He's, he's wearing yeah. a leather Adidas outfit that involves a kilt? Yeah. yeah. It also is bedazzled? <laughs> it was the style of the time. But yeah, no, Jonathan Davis used to come out in a kilt and like him playing bagpipes was a big part of like their whole thing. Uh, you had David Silvera like in his prime. Still blonde. With, still blonde. Is that the sexy drummer? <laughs> Oh, yeah. If you haven't heard our episode on him, you should go take a listen. <laughs> Check it goes, it goes bad for David Silveria. <laughs> Korn will still say that was the best show of our career. Right. And it shows. It's amazing. And they had so much fun that it caused more than one member to lose their sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> it did. They blame Woods like, well, yeah, we got really fucked up after that show. How can you not? Uh, Limp Biscuit. I didn't think they were super impressive. I don't think they realized what they were walking into when they did it and like how big a mark that would be on their career. You mean like by him walking off stage and the first thing out of his mouth is, it's not our fault. They didn't get to a lot of the new metal, right? They, we got Kid Rock. I hate Kid Rock. Um, Kid, Kid Rock set really showcased just the rampant misogyny. He just grabbed his dick and wagged it at the crowd. He came out without a shirt on. Like we said, he called Monica Lewinsky a whore. Hey, he played drums, man. Th dude, that's the thing that blows my mind. Everybody's like, dude, he plays every inch. And I've heard this in real life from people that have gone to Kid Rock shows. He played every instrument on that stage. I'm like, yeah, that's not hard in a Kid Rock song. There's nothing complex happening in any of these songs. <laughs> also, I don't know how I would feel if I was in a band and part of our act was for our singer to go around and go, you're replaceable. You're replaceable. I can do everything you do. <laughs> like, fuck you. I like the part where I like the part where he's like scratching the record and then he like turns around and scratches behind his back. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. We could talk about this all day, but let's kind of go through our closing thoughts. Mogan, we'll start with you. Uh basically what it comes down to is Michael Lang and John Shear are entrepreneurs and they're out to make money and they're out to sell you something and they want to sell you this music festival. And so the location, like you were saying earlier, was chose because they didn't want people to not pay to come to the thing they were selling you. And they cut so many corners on um, accommodations. There's no shade anywhere. There isn't enough water. I mean, there's the one part where he goes off on like, well, we supplied water. Did you supply enough water for half a million people? Or did you have a drinking <laughs> fountain that people took their tops off in? People know that. <laughs> people, like, people aren't stupid. As much as we've been talking about how people are stupid, when it comes down to it, people aren't stupid. People know when they're they're being fucked over, man. And that's really what it led to. It's, you know, I have a note here of um, people who John Shear blamed for Woodstock. John Shear blamed Fred Durst because he played the song Break Stuff. John Shear blamed MTV. At one point, he said, Kurt Loder's not a team player. Kurt Loder's my age. Oh, and not a war reporter. Yeah, he, he just wants to be a war reporter. How dare he say my festival where people are breaking open ATMs with their hands, raping people, setting fires, and everyone 
the only metaphor anyone uses for Sunday night is Lord of the Flies. How dare he say that? He's on his own trip. He's just bummed he didn't go to war. He's blaming the Red Hot Chili Peppers for playing a song that has the word fire in it. You know, the same excuse people used to Beavis and Butthead. And in the end, he said, I said this at the time and I'll say it now. I blame, quote, knuckleheads. No, asshole. You treat people like shit. They're going to get mad fuck you well said yeah. sir yeah i mean i i agree i agree with what you're saying i think it was a combination of a marketing campaign that brought out the worst in, the worst people and then brought out the worst in those people to go to this show i mean there were definitely people that i mean i'm not gonna ever agree with john Shear that it was knuckleheads but there were some people that were at that festival that were like we're gonna fuck shit up then there were the people that were like i am angry that this happened to me so in response i'm going to fuck shit up and those people joined forces and then everybody fucked shit up if you were still there on day three you were fucking shit up i do think it was really interesting though like the mtv element because mtv marketed this thing that's how oh, everybody yeah. knew oh, about yeah. it right but the second that like MTV reporters were visible, Carson Daly walked out on stage and just got pelted with bottles. Like <laughs> the fans were so mad. Oh, he wasn't even on stage. He was on a tower. And people are like, there he is. Get him. Like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a point where like Viacom executives called them and said, we cannot guarantee your safety. And they had to evacuate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was like the last chopper out of Saigon. It was fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, but like these people were, and there's a scene with that guy. He's like, I'm sick of the Backstreet Boys. I'm just sick of this. And that's that entitled white boy culture where it's like, well, I, I should be the target market for everything. And they don't have that gear where they understand like, oh, that's not programmed for you. Like, not everything has to be about you. And that's the same mi mindset of storming the Capitol. Like, I am no longer the most culturally important segment of our society anymore. It's passing me by and I am angry. And like, I just see so many similar parallel vibes. It is wah. For me, my big problem with the rioting and looting here is that they waited too long. They should have done this on day one. <laughs> Kids... If you're going to a festival this summer, burn it to the fucking ground. If something as small and uh, unseen as a virus can get Chipotle to pay $15 an hour, imagine what a handful of matches could do for live music. <laughs> the views and opinions of Kevin Delore do not represent Days of the New. <laughs> oh, fuck it. Fuck all of them. Like, Kevin, we're going to a festival in like fucking 45 days and you're going to be perfectly behaved. <laughs> yeah, don't cover Jimi Hendrix. But everyone, pull out your penis. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying, Nick? <laughs> that concludes our uh, summer break. Uh, we just had to jump in and talk about Woodstock 99. And as we do with all these episodes, we end with what we are listening to. So, Mogan, as our guests, what are you listening to? I have finally drank the Kool-Aid and really, really, really like the new stuff from Turnstile. Um, it's finally clicked with me for years. Uh, yeah, for years I was just, you know, kind of dismissed him as like, uh, I don't know, Gen Z, you know, odd future type thing. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it's dope. What track would you recommend from Turnstile? We'll play about 10 seconds of it. Uh, how about, uh, uh, TLC, sure. I want to
So that is TLC, which is actually Turnstile Love Connection by Turnstile. Yeah, buddy. Nick, what you got, man? Um, so I recently became aware of a pop star by the name of Rina Sawayama. You guys know who that is? Mm-mm. No. No. So she is a fantastic singer, right? She's a young pop star, right? But she blends elements of new metal into her music. Hit me. Uh, just go with the t- lead-off track off her newest album. The song's called Dynasty. Yeah, it's interesting, right? And I mean, this is like pop star, pop star. And she's, you know, bringing these elements in. So I dig it. So uh, for me, Nick, as you mentioned, we are going to be going to Furnace Fest. And I found out that the pre-show has one of my favorite hardcore bands, the very underrated Drowning Man from Vermont. Drowning Man has not put out an album since 2005, but... The one that I keep coming back to is the EP, How They Light Cigarettes in Prison. And the track off that is Black Tie Knife Fight. So for those of you who have never heard of Drowning Man, they are, in my opinion, the originators of the incredibly long song titles. Uh, One of my favorites is If God Loves a Winner, He's Gonna Wanna Fuck Me in a Minute. They are also one of the, in my opinion, originators of kind of the Dillinger Escape Plan-ish sound mixed with clean vocals. I'm going to play just a little bit of Black Tie Knife. Has like a 3-1-G vibe to it. Yeah, so uh, very excited to see Drowning Man again. All right, guys. Well, that concludes this very special edition of Days of the New. Mokin, thank you once again for joining us. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. We hope you're having a great summer. Uh, We've been busy writing, and uh, I know Mokin will be joining us again. I'm not going (laughs) to spoil that. It's going to be good. Yeah, we've got some really fun stuff lined up. Until then, it's been one of those days. Ah! Mm -hmm.